My name's Jake. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Hey, yeah, I'm one of them short guys. I get the goddamn things down. They read all them announcements, but they forgot one. Now about sex. <laughs> You ain't going to believe who's putting it on. I ain't going to tell you. But Jack will have that announced. It was in the room over there, and I said, why aren't they announcing this? I mean, hell, that's what I'd be interested in if I was new, you know. <laughs> See you, Jack. I don't have that thing memorized, y'all do, but I'll tell you, through God's grace and miracle, this program working in my life a day at a time. I've not had to drink, and I've been sober since March the 8th of 1974. And I will... And I will never be able to truly show the gratitude I feel for that. I can say thanks, but I'll never be able to truly show you the gratitude I feel. You know, uh... When we were talking this, you know, before the meeting and, and, and George said, George, George, George said, I'm nervous. I said, well, hell, so am I. And he said, well, I'll pray you don't be nervous. He said, no, just pray I don't pee. God, I didn't plan on being here. I never planned on being in Cincinnati. Closest I planned on being here was in Newport, and that was in 59. And I wasn't exactly making a 12-step call, <laughs> but, but I didn't. I didn't plan on being there. I never planned on being an alcoholic. You know, I've heard some great messages this weekend. I really haven't. For some, it was the first time I heard them, and some it wasn't. You know, I've heard Peggy before. It's so dear. You know, just, I love her. I love her brand of sobriety. You know, Marty, God, what a trip, you know? <laughs> Love is sobriety, and if he ever runs out of work, he can all, you know, no, just, what a guy. Just a lot of fun, and Linda, Sharon this afternoon, the Alamon one, oh, God, it's just, just been fantastic to this point. If you missed the gong show, you really missed something. You know, if you think, I think that's what it was, those are the ones that are doing now about sex. <laughs> the dartboard, that's. Well, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go to the Gong Show next year. But it's just been a fantastic weekend. It just really has. You know, and when I got called, and, and uh, I guess I got called by the committee a while ago, and they said, we've been trying to get a hold of you, and we, we couldn't find where you live. And, you know, uh, I like what Sharon said when she said she's consistent in her sobriety. I am consistent in my sobriety. But I haven't lived in the same place since the day I got sober, nor have I had the same job. But I've been consistent in alcoholics and all. And a few years ago, there's a lot of things happened in my life. I have a wife that I love very dearly, and she had some sicknesses, and I'll tell you about them a little later. And things got a little rocky, and, uh, and I was living in, in North Carolina and at the beach and maintaining two places. Oh, this was a hell of a mess. And when I was two, they were finally able to move. I didn't think about calling around the country to different papers to say, hey, I've moved. It just wasn't a priority, you know, at that point. It just wasn't. And, 
And and that was God's way. You know, I wasn't supposed to. And I thought about it later. So, yeah, people might look and I'll let them know. But see, the deal was then to get to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, if you ask me to share with you, I'll try and share with you. And the only thing I can share with you is my experience in this program. You know, I'm going to ask you from the newest person here. God was great to two people. Less than we could fantastic. Young people, about like me. You know. <laughs> no. Well, don't laugh. You'll be old one day. But, no, but young. And, you know, got, got it all ahead and just, and, and, and making a beginning. But then you look down the road and, you know, I saw the first one to take, that this stood was, was, uh, Bill and, and he had 45 years. And then there was a long gap. That long gap. So a lot of thinking you can do about that. You know? They're all drunk. They're all dead. And the other, and I'm not trying to, you know, we come to Alcoholics Anonymous and just because we come here and we have a desire not to drink, it behooves us to do a hell of a lot more just to walk in the door once in a while. If we hope to be able to stay sober a day at the time. And I hope that you're able to get across here in, in my talk tonight and what I, when I talk about me, how important that is to me. I don't want to forget it. I don't want to forget it and that's why I'm here. I didn't plan on being an alcoholic. I had other things in mind growing up. You know, I remember as a, as a real little kid, I was in school one time, I was reading a book about an attorney, Clarence Darrow. And God, that guy impressed me, and I said, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be an attorney, just like him, make a lot of money, be important, be flamboyant, be good at what I do. If I can be that, things are going to be great. Later on, I wanted to be a cop, and later on, it's just all things I wanted to be. But I never could become those things. To be any one of those things, I'd have had to pay a price. I'd have had to go to school. I'd have had to be disciplined in what I did. And I'd have had to change certain things academically. And then I could be one of those. And I wasn't willing to pay those prices. But yet if one of you would have sat me down and explained to me, as young as I was, it told me the price that I was going to pay to gain admission to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd have said, you're crazy. If he said, yeah, you're going to sacrifice a family. You're going to destroy a career. You're going to almost lose your life. Just to get to AA, I'd have said, you're nuts. I'll never do it. And I just, just did just that. I never planned on it being that way. You know, there were a lot of things that went on with me before I got to AA, before I ever took a drink, that are a part of my alcoholism. Yet these things that I'm going to touch on briefly did not make me an alcoholic. They just made me a screwed up kid. You know, as far back as I can remember, I was mad. Now, I didn't know I was mad. I was just a kid. You know, I, I thought everybody felt like I felt. We heard feelings expressed today about growing up and not feeling like you belong. That was me as far back as I can remember. We heard people talking about life. That was me as far back as I can remember. I didn't know that was wrong. It was just normal. I thought everybody felt that way. I thought everybody was mad. So I didn't go around knowing I was mad. I thought I was normal. I didn't know I was mad until I was sober a year and a half. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm an alcoholic anonymous a year and a half, and I was sitting at the West Restaurant, the big book group in West Palm Beach, Florida. That was my home group at the time. And I was sitting there, and we'd had a discussion that night, and after the meeting, a man put his arm around my shoulder, put his arm around my shoulder, and told me that he loved me. And he told me that I was a phony, and that I was about to get drunk. How could you say that to me? I was Mr. A.A. I was sort of the poster child in West Palm Beach. <laughs> I was. I mean, I'd come in here with wine stores. I'd chaired meetings, for God's sake. I did everything in that group you could think of. Chairing meetings, making coffee, cleaning ashtrays, washing cups. We had regular cups there. Had to wash it. I, I did everything except be treasurer. I still ain't been treasurer. But... <laughs> 
Not really a resentment, just a little message. But, <laughs> but anyhow, there I was, and this guy told me I was a phony and I was about to get drunk. And you know what I felt right then? I felt angry. I was mad at him. I hated him for telling me that. And the reason I hated him is because I knew it to be true. I knew that I was phony and I didn't know that you knew it. But when he told me that he knew it, I knew it was the truth. And he took me home with him that night. carried me to his trailer. A pardon me. His manufactured home. You see, no, I'm serious now. Don't giggle. I used to think they were trailers. The hell, I got one now. They're manufactured homes. They ain't trailers. <laughs> They're pretty nice. But he carried me back to us in a swamp in Palm Beach County. Set me down on the stoop of that thing. And he talked to me about Alcoholics Anonymous. He talked to me about what was going to happen to me if I didn't work the steps. And he explained those alternatives. Either I could go to the bitter, I could go to the bitter end, or I could accept this kid of spiritual tools. That was it. Faced with that alternative, John and I talked about step one. And John, you know, by that, I'd accepted the first part of step one. I accepted the day I got here. I knew that I was powerless over alcohol, but that life being unmanageable, I never really embraced that or looked at it until I was sitting on his, sitting at his trailer. And I looked at my life because he pointed it out to me. He asked me how I was getting along in my marriage. Well, hell, not very good. She moved out of the bedroom. He asked me how long how I was getting along at work. I wasn't. I'd gone into business with some guys, and we I was going bankrupt, and I was on the verge of going to jail. You know, so my my work life wasn't doing too good. Every area of my life that he asked me about, things were in terrible shape. And as I looked at it that way, and he said, Jay, isn't that unmanageability? And I saw my life for what it was, and I accepted step one for the first time in my life. My life had become unmanageable. And then he talked to me about step two, and you know, I believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, and he boiled it down to simple stuff. He didn't say I wouldn't do bizarre things in my life. I'm glad he didn't, because I have. I probably will again. It's just part of the way I do sometimes. I'm crazy as hell at times. But what he told me was that alcohol would not be an acceptable alternative. See? I do less and less crazy things as I work this program, but that is not the sanity that he was talking to me about. And he showed me in the book, the book says that. What does it say? It says, we have seen fighting anyone or anything, even alcohol, for sanity has returned. It talks about the strange insanity that precedes the first drink. When he talked to me that, yeah, I believe that there was a power greater than me that could restore me to that state where drinking would not be an acceptable alternative. All it was was a conclusion. Step one, I can't. Step two, he can. And armed with that, and that took very little time to accept that, armed with that, we made a decision. We got on our knees on a stupid that trailer, and we prayed the third step prayer. He opened up the book, and we prayed it directly out of the book. We read it. You know, I know I've got a good mind, and I've memorized many, many things, but I've never memorized that prayer. And I, I reinforce that commitment every day. I read that every morning, and I have not memorized it. Just read it. Some days I can pray it. Other days I can only read it. But I go through that motion to reaffirm the commitment I made. Step three wasn't any work. I'm not arguing anyone. For me it was no work. It was just the work was in the second half of step one. Getting beat up to where I could say my life was unmanageable. Once I had that, to make a decision was nothing. I'd made decisions all the way along up till then. I'd prayed the third step prayer I don't know how many times before then. I prayed it with people. I prayed it with her when she was still in the bed. I remember one night, we didn't get along good that night. Get out of bed, bitch. We're going to pray the prayer. We prayed the prayer. Nothing happened. 
this feeling didn't come over me. I don't know why God wasn't there. And she didn't get any friendlier either. But you know, so I tried the prayer and it didn't work, but now that night I was doing it for a different way. I looked at things and I prayed the prayer just the way it was in the book. And immediately, finishing the prayer, we got off our knees and he handed me a legal tablet. It was all ready for me. It was a setup job. I know it now. The tablet was lined out in four columns. And he said, here, now we're going to do an inventory. And that's what the book says. This will have little or no lasting effect unless followed at once. I don't know what at once means to you, but it didn't mean very damn long to him. At once, followed by an inventory. And he said at the very top, in the left-hand corner, before that first column, he said, I want you to write down the word, I resent. And I looked at John, and I remember how I felt then. I looked at him and said, John, I don't resent anybody. And I didn't. I didn't resent a soul. He said, oh, that's all right. He said, put down, I hate. Oh, no problem. I hated everybody. God knows. I understood that. You see, I came to you rather uneducated. I didn't know a hell of a lot, and I needed things explained to me. So I put down I hate, and then he told me who to put down first. He said, put down Sarad. Now, that name doesn't mean anything to you, but that was the name of a guy living in my house. He was an Indian. He was from the island of Ceylon. And I'd gone into business with Sarad and another guy named Chandra. We were partners in, 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 a, in a corporation, an importing business. And we wasn't doing drugs or anything. We were importing semi-precious stones from the island of Ceylon. And the thing is, we were smuggling them out of there and smuggling them into here, and I was selling them. Now, I had no experience with that. I had been a thief, but I'd never, I didn't know anything about gemstones. What qualify? I don't know. But he's in my house, and I hated this guy. I hated him because he was sleeping in a bed, and my little boy was sleeping on the floor. I hated him because this guy's eating raw meat, and we're eating beans. I hated him because he got all my money. See, I'd had some money, and I'd had things in the bank, and I'd made a good living. It was all gone. They got my money, and I hated them for I hated them because he wore a dress. Now, they didn't call it a dress. Hell, they called it a sorry. But if you look at it, it's a dress. I, I just hated him, that's all. And when I put it down on paper, who I hated and why I hated him, God, it felt good. You know, he's talking about how it feels when you hate. I can hate, man. My mouth gets wet, you know, when I hate. It's better than steak at times, you know. And they tell me that'll kill me, you know. But as I put it down, put it down, why I hated him, I knew how real that hate was. And then John had me go back through my life and put down who I hated and why I hated him. Go back as far as I could remember. And you know, the first part of that inventory for those who haven't tried it that way, hell, we've been doing that all our lives anyhow. Whenever we're sitting down, we talk about you. You know, before we start working the stuff, we never talk about us, we talk about you. So that's what the first part of the inventory is, me talking about you. And I just did the normal thing. I hate and who and why. Went back through my life and found hate back all the way to back when I was a little kid. And I thought it was normal. I was a liar as far back as I can remember. And I never remember saying, I'm going to learn how to lie. It just came natural. We were talking in the car. Joy has one of her children. She said, this kid just lies and believes it. I said, what a great kid. What potential. You know, I... I identified with that. See, when I told a lie, I believed it. You know, I knew other people that lied. If you lied, I could spot it in a minute. Them guys, they lied, and I knew they was lying. But when I lied, I couldn't spot it. I didn't think I was lying. And if you didn't believe the lie that I told, I got mad. See? Now, when you can lie like that, you set yourself up with the biggest lie ever told, the one that almost killed me. And that was a lie that somehow, some way, this time I'd take a drink, and I wouldn't get in trouble. 
This time I take a drink and I wouldn't hurt her. I wouldn't hurt them or I wouldn't do that. And yet I take that drink and I do it over and over and over again. And didn't want it to be that way. But it all started with that ability to lie. Hell, I ain't took, I ain't even thought about drinking then. I was just lying and being mad. I was a thief as far back as I can remember. And I know I don't really look like a thief. I didn't look like a thief then. I thought I was a short, fat Robin Hood, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Going through life, you know? Well, yeah, it worked this way. I might take something from Peggy, and I'd turn around and I'd give it to Patty. And I wouldn't think that Peggy had earned this and really needed that. What I think, if I gave it to Patty, she'd want me around. Now, if I was talking to one of them counselors, they'd probably tell me that I was trying to buy someone's love. But hell, I wasn't trying to do that. I was just doing that kind of behavior. Nobody taught me that. It came natural. I think that the thoughts that I was having and the way I was behaving, the lying, the stealing, the no-self, all that crap, that's a part of alcoholism. But that doesn't make you alcohol. It just makes you screwed up. Then I went to the first grade. I had all that going, went to the first grade. Now, it ain't going to be as long a night as you think. But I got to the first grade. It was a parochial school. Remember my first teacher. Her name was Sister Lucy. Sister Lucy was sort of early S&M. She was an Ursuline nun. You got a picture of her. She had on a black habit and a white bib, and she had chains and crap that hung down and clanked leather stuff. I'm telling you, she was frightening, you know. Kinky. Well, not just in my head. But halfway through the school year, she called my parents in for a parent-teacher conference. And my parents come in, and I thought I was in trouble. I said, God, what did I do now? You know, I mean, I'm just a little kid, and I'm scared my parents were in for this conference. So I stood outside the door, and I eavesdropped. I heard her telling my parents. I said, Jay just appears to be a very intelligent child, and we've taken some tests, and when they appear, he can go wherever he wants and do whatever he wants to do, because he seems to be a gifted child. When I heard that bit of information, my education stopped immediately. <laughs> as soon as I heard how smart I was, I couldn't find nobody smarter than me to teach me anything. And I started getting in trouble. And I got in trouble from then on in school. My education stopped right after the eighth grade. I got a scholarship to a Jesuit high school. I lasted there about three weeks. Went to a boarding school in Kansas for another four weeks. Got thrown out of there. And then I was done with school. Finished. Because Nobody was smart enough to see. I got to AA and I met the same dummy. You know, I'm telling you, that first year and a half was tough in AA. You don't know how many dumb people were in right then. <laughs> After I started working the steps, it's amazing how many smart people showed up. I just, I don't know. But anyhow, there I was, and I was getting in trouble in school, and I didn't want it to be that way. And by the second and third grade, I'm in front of the class, and I'm getting all this, and I wanted things to be different. I thought if I could just be, if things had just changed, I'd be all right. If I could just be like Roger. God, if I could be like Roger, I'd be all right. Roger lived up the street. He was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid with rosy cheeks. Everybody liked Roger. My parents would say, why don't you be like Roger? The teachers would say, why don't you be like Roger? The little girls were like, God, every, every, if I could just be like Roger, I'd be all right. Now, Roger was also the kid we caught after school and beat the hell out of whenever we could. Nobody likes anyone thrown like that. But anyhow, that was going to be a pattern for me in my life, too. If I could just be like this one, I'd be all right. You know, we talk about freedom and alcoholics and honor. There's a lot of freedom as a result of the steps working in my life. And I'm going to tell you one of them. One of maybe the greatest ones is that today I don't have to be just like anybody else, you know. 
When I say I'm gay and I'm an alcoholic, that's the package. That's it. I don't have to be Marty or Lou or I, I, all I got to do is be gay. See? Now I can look at you and I can say, you know, this individual has certain characteristics that I'd like in my life. And I can say, what are they doing to get that? How are they, how are they being a better, a better spouse or a better parent? And I can, I can work with God's help on things to change those things about me so I can be better in that area, but I don't have to be just like anybody else. And what a fantastic treatment. But as a kid, I didn't know that. You know, by the time I was nine years old or eight and a half years old, I was hauled in front of a juvenile referee. I started running away and I didn't like my home and, and I didn't see, I just thought, I don't, had no reason for it. It was just going on inside of me. And I got in front of a juvenile referee and they sent me off to an orphanage. And they thought that had straightened me out. And, and it's the funny thing about this orphanage. There weren't no orphans there. Hell, I wasn't an orphan. They're just guys like me. They had a label for me. You know, they called me incorrigible. Now, some of you might know what that means. I didn't. Hell, it's just a long word. I looked it up. What it was was a multi-syllable word that meant punk. I was an eight and a half. I was just a punk going off. And while I was there, I said, things will be different. You know, I'll do what they tell me, and I'll be all right. And I was there for a while, and, and things weren't no different. I got out of there, and I got in trouble again. I got locked up again. And I stayed locked up off and on from then until I was 17 and a half years old. And I didn't want it to be that way. Every time I'd be back on the street, I'd get caught doing what I was doing again. And I didn't want it to be that way. I wanted it to be better. I wanted to be able to be a loving son. I wanted to be the kind of son I saw the kids being. I wanted to be the, have the kind of dad other kids had. You know, I was born in an upper-middle-class family in the suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. My dad was a big shot in Cleveland. He was a, a news analyst for WGAR, for a big radio station. And he, and he, uh, he was well-known. He was well-connected. You know, I wanted, wanted he and I to be buddies. I saw other guys go fishing with their dad. And I said, my, my dad and I will go fishing one day. Or we'll go to ball games. Or we'll do things. And we never did them. I never felt that thing with my dad that I wanted to feel. I just wanted that. I never felt it with my mom. You know, I can't, to this day, I don't remember my dad ever hugging me, telling me that he loved me. I don't remember my mother ever kissing me as a child. And yet I know they did. Don't think for a minute that they didn't. Sure they did. But there was something in me that kept me from feeling it. Something in me that has kept me from remembering it. I don't know what it is. Don't have to know. I think it's a part of my alcoholism. That, that thing in there that bars it. You know, I accept that. But then I wanted that as a kid, and I felt that missing. I just wanted to be a loving son. I couldn't do that. Way. And then a miracle came into my life. I was out of a reformatory for a short period of time at about 13 years old, or approximately about, and, and I, want, I decided to get a drink. I knew I didn't look old enough to drink. In Ohio at that time, you had to be 21 to drink. Hell, I didn't even look 13. I hadn't cultivated my first bit yet, for God's sake. <laughs> So I stole some money from my mother's purse, and I went to the drugstore, and I stole me an eyebrow pencil, and I, I give myself a beard and a mustache. You know? <laughs> I have no idea what it looked like. I'd give a lot of money to have a picture of what I looked like. And going down to the lower end of 25th Street, which is Skid Row in Cleveland, with this 10 million blackheads dotted onto my face, for crazy. Anyone who's ever drank on a skid row, and that's at the lower end of 2050, was knows that you don't have to be a certain age or a certain anything to drink on a skid row. You go to enough of them gin mills, put some money on enough bars, and eventually one of them give, give you what you want. And we went to enough of them bars, me and this other guy, and put our money on enough of the bars, and finally one of them gave us what we wanted. We got two bottles of mixed screwdrivers and two bottles of Thunderbird wine. 
I know why I ordered Thunderbird. I really, I can imagine why, because there's a sign. It used to be on 26th Street. 26th made a big swoop by Scranton. I remember seeing this big billboard all the time that had this bird flying on it. You know, God, it looked great. It just promised something when you looked at it, you know. And the phrases that went with it, the places I'd been locked up, they had phrases like, what's the word? Thunderbird, you know. <laughs> by God, that promises something, I'll tell you that. You try and do that with Mogan David, it don't rattle you up. You know you're crazy. <laughs> and I guess screwdrivers to the sound is sexy. I don't know what the hell was going on. But we got that stuff and put it in a sack and went around behind the bar behind some bushes and we started to drink. And I don't know what one we started with. don't know what it tasted like. But I know what happened shortly after we started to drink with everyone we started with. For the first time in my life, everything came together. For the first time in my life, I didn't worry about getting arrested or getting out of jail or not being able to love or not being not being able to be loved. Everything went away, and I was okay. And I didn't even know it happened. It had to be the absolutely most fantastic feeling that a guy like me could ever experience because I pursued the recapturing of it at every opportunity for the next 17 and a half years. And I never got it back quite the way it was that night. I woke up the next morning in a way that I was going to wake up in over and over again until I got to you, Pete. I woke up in a mess, and it was mine. I woke up with a new fear about me, and I didn't wake up and say, you know, you got a new fear, Daddy. Hell, that didn't happen that way. What happened was I was working that inventory with John, and, you know, let me tell you how that went on. I left his house that night with that paper, and he gave me directions on it, and I'd call him once or twice, and I went back to, you know, had to do the other columns, you know, which is what we do, and I'll use the first guy as an example. He said, after I went through and put down who I hated and why I hated him, he said, now put down how it affected me. And the way that guy Siraj affected me, it affected my self-esteem. So I didn't think I was a very good husband or father. It affected my security because I was going bankrupt. It affected my sex life. You know, hell, I was ready to join sex without partners. Things weren't good at home. It affected every area of my life. And I went through my whole list and put it down how it affected me. And then I went on to the next column and saw with fear and ruin. And then John said, now what we're going to do, Jay, is put out of our mind the wrongs they have done, real or imagined. Put it out of our mind and see where we were wrong. Now, how could I be wrong with this guy's garage? I told you what he did to me. I told you how he hurt me. I told you how he got my money. And John said, we resolutely looked for it. Those are strong words. Strong fear. Strong words. I said, God, help me not think about what I think he's done to me. Let me think if I've done anything to him. So we broke laws in this country, and we did. We smuggled stuff out. And, you know, after I decided to get involved with the steps, you know, and, and I began, John began helping me with the steps, uh, I had to redraw, withdraw a uh, 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 visa that I signed for this guy, and he was going to have to leave the country. And if he went back to the country of Sri Lanka, he was going to jail for a long, long time because of what we'd done. And, he's in it, and I didn't care, so I did that to him. I left him stranded. I robbed him of the opportunity to ever be able to see his family again. The money he got from me, I looked at the money I tried to get from them. So they were pretty wealthy, and they had contacts contact in Germany. And I, I had visions of being able to get into all these bank accounts and get all this money. You know, once I looked at my greed, my selfishness, my attitude, my what they did or what I thought they did no longer made any difference. 
and a fantastic thing happened. That hate that got my mouth wet was gone. It was just gone. Not only was it gone, but I also had clear cut directions what I was going to have to do to make amends to this man. When I saw what I had done wrong to him, I knew what I'd have to do right. What I'd have to do right. Went back through my whole life with that inventory that way, and I'll tell you, I can only report to you how it worked for me. But there was not a single resentment that I had down on that paper where I did not find that I was not in some way at fault. Been that way ever since. No matter what I think you've done to me, if I will look at it resolutely, I'll ask God to help me. I can see where I've added to it or taken away from where I've been a part of it. And I don't have to hate it. See, I can't live with hate anymore. I just can't live with it. The book tells me that. The experience of others is talking about it. Anyhow, I got through with that part of the inventory, and we went on to fear, and John said we write our fears down, and I put them down. The fears I told you about, about not being a good son, the fears about not loving, not being able to be loved, the fear of height. You know, I'm still afraid of height. I have real fears, I have unreal fears, so I put them all down. And when I got them down, I told John, he said, let's pray about them. We prayed, and I said, I'm still afraid. I still feel the same way. He said, what are you afraid of? I said, I don't know, I'm just afraid. And he opened up the book, to Bill's story, where Bill talks about the fear of impending calamity. You know, that sounds like a fancy phrase, but John broke it down where it made sense to me. He said, that's the fear that something bad's going to happen and you're not going to be able to stop it. God, I knew that fear. That was the fear that when there was a knock on the door, I wouldn't answer it. The phone rang. I, we didn't have caller ID then, for Christ's sake. You know, I didn't want to answer the phone. If an envelope came with an overturned address, I didn't want to open it. The fear that something was going to happen and I couldn't stop it. Bill talks about it. It's an evil and corroding threat. Our lives are shot through with it. I saw where mine was. I saw where that stretched way back to my early teen years and how it came on. As my drinking progressed, as my alcoholism progressed, that fear grew until by the time I got to you, it totally consumed. The only time that I wasn't consumed by it was when I was blacked out or passed out by the time I got to you. And then we got on our knees again and we prayed. And as we prayed, I felt that fear lifted from me. Not all my fears, but that fear. That unreal fear is gone. It's been gone from that day to this day, most of the time. The only time it isn't gone is when I'm not doing things I should do, or I am doing things I shouldn't do. And then God gives me a little wake-up call, and i got to look at it and say, what's going on? What am I doing that I shouldn't be doing, or what am I not doing that I ought to be doing? I can't live with the fear anymore than I can live with anger. Fear will get me drunk. Bill says that anger is a dubious luxury of seemingly normal people. You know, I feel the same way about fear. Fear will kill me. I can't live with it. I can't live with it. But you gave me a tool to get rid of it. You know, before I forget, there's a third part of that inventory, and, you know, I hope you don't short yourself on it. There's more pages spent on it than there are on fear or resentment, and that's sex. And when you do an inventory with sex, use the book as a guide. And the book tells us specifically what and what not to do. Who and who not to be with. Between you and your God. You know, all my life I'd always use you as my standard. If Peggy would tell me, Jay, you have to live this way, I'd say, yeah, i got to live that way. And I couldn't live by that standard because it's her standard. Or if you told me how to live, I could never live by your standard. But you gave me that freedom in the book. What is my standard? Pray to my God, ask him what my standard is, write it down, and try and live by it. 
I'm sober a lot longer today than I was the day that I wrote down my initial standards. And if you don't think my standards improved from that point to this, something's wrong. Something's wrong. So don't short yourself. Don't short yourself. Anyhow, there I was, 13 years old, coming off that first drunk, had that new fear, and had something else wrong. And I didn't think it was wrong. And that was the fact I didn't remember what happened the night before after I started drinking. Now, if Jack would have said, Jay, you had a blackout, I'd have said, you're crazy. I didn't have a blackout. I don't remember. I didn't know that blackouts and not remembering were the same. And I thought everybody that drank had them. You know, I didn't go around and take a survey and say, hey, you remember last night? You know, I just assumed that you did, that you had them. Now, again, if I was talking to one of them counselors, they'd say, Jay, you've got these symptoms that are alcoholism. I'd have said, you're crazy. How can I be alcoholic? I'm only 13 years old, for God's sake. I didn't know what an alcoholic was until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. An alcoholic before there was always somebody other than I. I was drinking with a guy named Eddie one day. He and I and my wife and another person sitting in his room on a ship. We were going to see him. And we're sitting there in port drinking, and Eddie all of a sudden, we saw he was vomiting, trying to get liquor down, vomiting, blood start coming out. My wife looked over and said, by God, Eddie's in bad shape. I said, yeah, he is. She said, I believe he's an alcoholic. I said, he probably is. He ought to quit. You know, about three months later, she came in the bathroom, and I'm vomiting blood up all over the bathroom. And she said, you look just like Eddie. I said, oh, no, I'm not that bad. I had some cherry stone clams last night, and they've affected my stomach. You see, no matter what was going on with me, it wasn't as bad as what I saw with you, and I wasn't an alcoholic. I have no idea what one was. I got the Alcoholics Anonymous and gave me a definition. You gave it to me in the book, one that I like. It's described a few times, but the definition is simplest and clearest for me. fit me as accurately at 13 and a half years old as it fit me at 30 and a half when I got here. And that's the one on page 21 where it says, what about the real alcoholic? Isn't that a great statement, real alcoholic? You can get your teeth into it. He or she may or may not be a daily drinker, may or may not be a heavy drinker, but at some stage of his drinking career, begins to lose control once he starts to drink. Whether it's four years or ten, seventeen is me, forty is someone else, it makes no difference. No control once I start to drink. And it calls me seriously alcoholic. Real alcohol. God was a great phrase. Later on in the book, it says, as seriously alcoholic as we were. What a great phrase. Isn't that better? It sounds professional, doesn't it? Almost like being a lo- lo- uh, doctor. Not lawyer. Would have said lawyer years ago. Didn't know what one was. He gave you a definition of fitness. I'd like to tell you that after I came off that first drunk, I stayed sober for the next four years because I came to AA, but I didn't. I went into, the na- went into another reformatory and stayed there four years. And I ran away from there at 17 and a half, and I went away to the Navy, and I went to boot camp, and I was going to join the service, and I was going to fight for my country, and things were going to be all right. This is in 1959, I said, and things will be better. And I wrote my parents, and I told them that I was going to be in the service, and they wrote me back, and they said that they loved me, and they were proud of me, that I was doing something right, and they were going to watch me graduate. And I graduated from boot camp, and they came up and seen me. Now, I found out later what happened. When I ran away from that reformatory, the law went to my parents' house. They wanted me back. And my parents got a lawyer, and they went to the juvenile court, and they petitioned them to allow me to stay in the service, and the, the, the court allowed me to, in the hopes that would make me into a productive human being. And I didn't know that my parents did that. Had I known they'd done that, I'd have gotten mad. I'd have said, why are you meddling in my life? Why don't you let me do it my way? You know, leave me alone. I didn't know that everybody wanted to help me, wanted the right thing for me. 
And they came up and watched me graduate. My parents were falling on hard times. My dad was no longer a big shot. And they rode a Greyhound bus to Chicago and train out to where the boot camp was. And, and they saw this ceremony. I remember taking me into town, into Chicago, near Station for, for a 12-hour pass I was on. And it was near the bus station where they were going to have to ride back. But we went into a restaurant. My dad was going to buy me a meal. And we went in there. He said, son, he said, I know you're not legally old enough to drink. He said, but if you're old enough to be in the service, he said, I think you're old enough to drink. He said, would you like to have a drink? Now, I'm sure that I had alcohol in me before this, before 13. I'm sure because I've watched my dad drink all my life. My dad was not a common social drinker. My dad just drank all the time. And four in the morning when he got up to go to work, he had a drink in his hand. When he came home at two, he had a drink. All night, he always drank. Mom had two or three every night. We go to church, he had a drink in the car. You know, but he was never drunk, never stumbled, never slurred, never drunk. Just drank. Yes, yeah. Sure, I, you know, I never thought nothing about it. He looked at me, and when he asked me, I said, yeah, I'd like a beer. And, you know, I got that warm glow we get, you know, we're going to have a drinking buddy. Because I said, now my dad and I will be drinking buddies. And I knew by then what drinking buddies were. And so I'll have a beer. And he ordered me a beer. He ordered himself a cup of coffee and my mother a Coca-Cola. I remember looking over at him and saying, what's the matter? Aren't you drinking? I started to get this funny feeling on there. My mother looked at me and said that we were looking around at some of these women get. She said, no, she said, the daddy doesn't drink anymore. She's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. She's been sober for three months. I'll tell you about my dad. My dad almost died of the disease of alcoholism. In 1959, he went to Rosary Hall. Rosary Hall was a treatment center run by Sister Ignatius. Many of you are familiar with it being from here in Ohio. The Sister Ignatia ran it. It was a three to five day detox. That's all it was. There was no structure. There was three to five day detox. You detox with alcohol and, and period. You just got a little bit, a little bit left and then you were out. When you were out of convulsions, you were gone. You got one shot there. That was it. And the only way you got in, it was only for men. There was no place for women there. But um, your sponsor checked you in and when you were checked out, you were checked out into the care of your sponsor and that was it. My, and the guy that was my dad's sponsor, a guy named Jim, took him up there and and, and checked him in. And my dad laid in straps, they said, for five days in convulsions. When my daddy came out of straps and they discharged him, and their sister Nathan gave him a sacred heart thing and a little bronze medallion, a little bronze token. One that I have in my wallet today had a serenity prayer and a tradition and a step on it. He gave it to him and said, Jim, if you go with your sponsor to Alcoholics Anonymous and do what those people tell you to do, you'll never have to come off another drunk. My daddy went with his sponsor and came to you people. And he was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and then until he died, almost 20 years later, 21 years later, he didn't have to take another drink. And he did what you told him to do. Okay? And there my daddy was offering to buy me a drink if I'd want one. He wasn't judging alcohol, wasn't judging me. If I wanted one, he'd buy me one. Did I see it as an act of unconditional love and non-judgmental love? No. I'll tell you what I saw it as. I looked at my watch. I said, how soon can I be away from these people and meet my friends and do some drinking? I knew that the only reason he wasn't drinking is because he didn't love me. If he loved me, he'd be drinking. He just talk to me. You say selfish self-centeredness, that's the root of our problem. All I gotta do is look at my history. I know what it is. I could accept that. I could accept that. I didn't see it then. I got away from my folks and I met my friends and I drank. Woke up the next morning, same way I woke up the last time I drank. Same mess. Same fear and same not remembered. And I didn't want it to be that way. My career in the Navy doesn't last very long. One day less than six months after I got in, I wound up in a room, maybe an eighth the size of this room. 
It was a funny kind of room. It was intense. Well, I was on an aircraft carrier uh, in Pensacola, and I woke up, and I woke up not in my aircraft carrier. I woke up in this room, and it had it had funny windows. They had big screens on the inside, and no handles on the door. And it was a nut ward of the Naval Hospital in Pensacola. And they called me before board officers, and they gave me a paper to sign. And they said, if you sign this, we'll give you an honorable discharge, and if you don't, we'll court-mark you. I never read it. I just signed it. You know, hell, I mean, that's an easy choice to make. And then they told me, they said, what I had signed was a guarantee that, you know, that, that, that I relinquished all rights and benefits, and I guaranteed I'd never attempt to re-enlist in any of the armed forces as long as I live. Now, that was a long time ago, and I've lived up to my word. <laughs> I ain't gone back. But they said they took the time to explain to me about me. They told me, these guys told me, there were doctors there, and they told me that I had what they would term to be acute alcoholism. And they said, by acute alcoholism, we mean when you drink, you get you get in trouble. Well, hell, I knew I got in trouble when I drank, but it wasn't drinking that got me in trouble. We heard that day when Sharon was talking, we heard earlier that drinking didn't get me in trouble. See? You got me in trouble. You know, it was situations that got me in trouble. Drinking just happened to be around there. I could be sitting in a bar. I'll give you an example that might sound extreme, but I could be sitting in a bar every bit as big as this room with nobody in it except me and the bartender in a jukebox. And I'd be listening to the jukebox. I have always liked country music. Now, if you don't like it, something's wrong. Country music is drinking music. Look at the songs. They still come out with them. There was one four or five years ago. God, I've never forgot it. Bubba shot the jukebox. If that ain't a drinking song, I ain't lying. Now. Listen to it sober, you want to shoot it. You know, it's just... But I'd be sitting there in that bar, me and the bartender and the music, and I'd be thinking, because it's good to think when you drink and you listen to that. And I'd be sitting, drinking and thinking, and all of a sudden I'd look up an hour or two later, and there'd be two of them back in the corner. And they'd be talking about me. Hell, there was no doubt about it. Their lips were moving. See, when you talk to me about selfishness and self-centeredness, I can accept it. I know now. And I'd go back to do something about it, being absolutely no bigger then than I am now. Perhaps I was a little skinnier then. I'd lose. Now, I was a fighter, but I was a loser. I couldn't win. If it wasn't for lack of wanting, I just couldn't get the job done. And I'd go back to the ship, sometimes with clothes on, sometimes without clothes, always in a bloody condition. And I didn't want it to be that way. And they said if I stopped drinking, then I'd be all right. But if I continued, it wouldn't be long and I'd be chronic. And they said, by chronic, we mean daily. They're telling me this. I'm not even 18 years old. It's just a day or two short of my 18th birthday. How could I be an alcoholic? Hell, I ain't even had a date yet. Well, if I had, I wouldn't tell you about it. I'd been in an all-male environment all that time. <laughs> just give me those papers and I'll be on my way. There was another thing on the paper that I was real embarrassed about. I wouldn't talk about it for quite a while. Find that, see, you don't get rooms like you get here, for instance. And by the way, let me thank the committee, the whole committee, for everything you've done. The three fruit baskets. Sorry. <laughs> the sweet. <laughs> I want to thank for everything. <laughs> but, yeah, you, know, you don't get a like, deal like that in the Navy. On a ship in the Navy, what you get is a canvas rack about two foot wide and six foot long. And I got there, and being the newest guy, I had the highest rack. And I was way up there, and I had four guys underneath me complaining to the division officer every morning. 
about getting peed on the night before. Now, I have tried to find a way to explain that where it doesn't sound like I was a bedwetter. Because I wasn't. There's a big difference between what was wrong with me and being a bedwetter. I had problems. And these problems gave me problems. And I had a lot of embarrassment attached to it. You know, it was going to travel with me for a long, long time. It didn't just happen that day. It started a long time before. And it was still going along with me. You know, I was getting ready to get married a number of years later, and I still had this problem. And this problem's a great embarrassment. How do you, I guess that's probably the only reason I hadn't shacked up with her, for God's sake. I didn't want her to know. But we're getting ready to get married, and I knew she'd find out. So I had to tell her about it. And I was going through an enforced period of sobriety prior to this marriage. But I got about drunk one day, so I could explain to her about this problem. You know how we do. I told her I had to talk to her. It was real important that our marriage was going to depend upon it. And she said she loved me. Anything was all right. And I said, well, it's real important. So anyhow, she got off work, and we got around the kitchen table there where we were at the place I was staying at. And, and I was, like I say, about drunk, you know, where I could talk real good. And I got that eye contact. You know, you got locked eyeballs when you're going to lie good. You know, I said, got right down into her eyes and said, I love you. <laughs> and I told her, I said, I've told you a lot of things about me, but there's one area I've sort of skirted around because I'm so embarrassed about it. So you told me you were locked up and all the reformatories and all this and that and what you've done. So as far as one area I just didn't want to tell you, it's just so touchy, so embarrassing. She said, honey, anything's fine. I love you. Nothing will shatter our marriage. It's going to be well. I said, you know, what happened was, I said, you know, I was on that aircraft carrier. I said, we were down in the tropics and I was serving our country. And I contracted this rare kidney ailment. <laughs> so I suffered for, I've been to the Mayo Clinic and Hopkins Institute. I said, I suffer from occasional periods of incontinence. So if you love me, you might want to take swimming lessons prior to marriage. <laughs> she hadn't heard a damn word about alcoholism, Alan on or anything else, and she got the lessons and we got married. I got to tell you, jump ahead for a minute, I told you when I got sober, about three months after I got sober, I was sitting around the house one day whining. Nobody else had probably ever done that. Oh, wait, maybe they did. They were talking this afternoon about babies, said they call them babies on the West Coast. And I think, well, because they whine, whine. Yeah. And why do they call them pigeons on the East Coast? My sponsor explained that to me. He said, have you ever noticed a pigeon? I said, not really. He said, well, pigeons do three things. He said, they eat shit and bitch. So, anyhow. Sorry, but that's what he said. Anyhow, there I was laying around the house one day whining, and she walked by, and I said, hey. And she stopped and turned around. That was her first name. I said... We had a communication problem. You know, I said, I've been going to AA every single day, doing what they tell me to do. I said, I said, and, and landlord's bothering me all the time. She said, well, you ain't paid the rent. She walked off. I hollered after her again. Hey, she turned around. Went through it again. Said, I've been going to AA every single day. I said, and you don't love me. She wouldn't even answer me. She took off again. I knew I was in trouble. I went after her, give him a very best shot, sort of tapped her on the shoulder. I said, hey, you, use her last name. She spun around. <laughs> Told her again, going to AA every single day, doing everything they tell me to do. I said, I still go to the bathroom all the time. She just sort of sat back, looked at me and said, yeah. She said, do you realize you've been getting out of bed every single night? No, I didn't. You talked to me about selfishness and self-centeredness. You didn't say when I was drinking. You said that's the root of my problem. Drunk and sober. Before and after. See? Whenever I get wrapped up in me, thinking about me, the landlord bothering me, me not working, her not loving me, whatever it is, anything that's me-oriented, I miss out on God. 
what God's doing to me, through me, and around me. And it's the same way today. Let me not work the steps. Let me not have them going in my life. Let me not be doing what I should be doing. And that starts coming on. See? And I miss the step. Selfless and self-centered. That we think is the root of our problem. Anyhow, there I was in the Navy getting thrown out for, for alcoholism. And, and I went up to my parents' house the very last time and I got a driver's license on my 18th birthday. Got there on my 18th birthday. Got an old Studebaker. For you young people, that's a real old car. But got this old Studebaker all rusted up. Got a new driver's license. And I went out to celebrate my 18th birthday. Woke up the next morning in jail. Eight traffic tickets. My mother was tortured courts in that small town, and I embarrassed everybody. I didn't want it to be that way. I never got a traffic ticket. I always got eight. There was always drunk driving, reckless driving, hit, skip, you know, no insurance. I got them all. I got three drunk driving tickets that I remembered, but there was always a series of eight. The rest of it was just no license. I never got a legal license until I was sober two and a half years. I kept driving, but had no license. I'd go to Texas and get one, or California, and then go somewhere else and drive. They'd catch me, take it away, I'd get another one. I was driving an ambulance in West Palm Beach, Florida one time, saving lives, and they arrested me for drunk driving, invalid driver's license, assaulting an officer. I'm telling you, I'm trying to help people, and I get in trouble. And I wanted things to get better. I Just give me a break, it'll be all right. So my driving career was pretty tough. I said, well, I know. They told me I was a lousy sailor. I'll go to sea. I got on my first ship, went off to Japan. God, it was a great job. Got on there, didn't get drunk all the way over because there wasn't nothing to drink. I went ashore to give me a little bit of money. Not much. I went ashore and I got something to drink. And the captain came and got me three days later. And he took me in the, up, up to his office and they gave me a captain's mask. And the, and the merchant marine, that's not military, but the merchant marine, civilian job, the captain's mask, just disciplinary action and they logged me. That means they give you this action and then he fired me. Well, that doesn't mean anything. The guy's on a ship, there's an old tramp freighter, and they told me everyone quits when we get back, so getting fired don't mean anything. They ain't going to make you walk. You know, from Japan back, it's a long, wet walk. You know, this means you're getting off, and we're going to get off anyhow. And they said, every company is a separate entity. And right now, we've got 300 ships under union agreement, and that's 300 different companies. And each one being separate. You get fired from one, you go to another, go to the hall and ship out again. I did the math. Each voyage, three or four months, 300 companies. 1,200 working months. Divide by, I ain't going to live 100 years. Hell, I'm secure for life. I get fired from every damn one of them. I'm all right. So I started getting in trouble in the merchant marine. So I started going up the ladder because I wouldn't drink. I'd have rules for periods of time. I wouldn't drink. I started going up the ladder and then I got a license in the merchant marine and trouble became more and more regular and I, I just wanted things to stop. If I could just slow it down, if I could just get it stopped, I'd be all right. The rules were all getting broken that I put into my life and I knew as last as if I got married and had kids, it'd be all right. I'd studied it. Married people didn't have problems. So I was sitting in a bar one day shopping for a wife and she walked in. Sat right down next to me. I looked over at her. Said, can I buy you a drink? She said, no, I don't drink. That was true love. I got her a Coca-Cola, got me another drink, mirrored some $100 bills out on the bar and I began to lie. She began to listen. And after a lengthy courtship, I proposed to her. She was mad. She was madder than hell and I found out why. She had a little baby a couple months old, another one four years old, and a husband that had badly, badly abused her. She hated men. She hated life. She didn't want nothing to do with anything to do with men. And I began to pursue her. And after a lengthy courtship, as I said, I, I proposed to her. Now, if you were to call up tonight and ask her how long that courtship was, she'll tell you 10 minutes. I think it was 20. Alcoholics don't rush into important decisions. We take our time. Ask any newcomer. That's it. Eh? We always take our time with important decisions. See? And she got scared and took off after a couple of weeks. And I tracked her down and she was in Florida. 
And I told her that I needed her and I wanted her. And I just got off the ship and I had all this money and I spun her these dreams. And the deal was, see, they weren't lies. They were real. What I was telling her was not a fairy tale, you know. It was real. It was the stuff I believed. I was just incapable of carrying out what I wanted to do. Lack of power. That was our dilemma. I didn't know that. And I was still for quick drink and cleaned up my mouth. Maybe we'd see what would happen. She got divorced on October 14th, 1966. Uh, and we got married on October 15th, 1966. Waited a long time. Our marriage didn't start off real good. I was running short on funds because I'd been off ship for a while waiting for that divorce to be final. We went to the candlelight flower shop on Congress Avenue in West Palm Beach. There's a farmer's market across the street from where I bought the ring. Had two people stand up for it. You know, I got the woman to do the deal for about 20 bucks. You know, she wanted more than that. And they were going to have an organ and her daughter would play it. Hell, I hummed, here comes the bride. And I got one rose, that damn few flowers, and I just, a lot of thorns, you know. We got married. Marriage wasn't a joke. Marriage wasn't a joke. You know, I never went into marriage thinking it wouldn't last, or thinking I wouldn't be able to be a good husband. I don't say marriages have to last forever. I'm telling you my take on it is I think everybody that goes in especially wants it to last. My whole background has been that way. It was not a temporary deal. I'd wanted it to last. Don't know why it lasted. I'll give you an, an observation a little later. But then when I went into it, you know, I was thinking about the responsibility of those kids. And they were coming into my life, and I was going to be their daddy. I'd be to them what my dad had never been to me. I'd be to her what she had never had in a husband. I'd support her. I'd give her security. I'd give her love. I'd give her faithfulness. Because I wanted to do those things, I thought I could do those things. Had you told me that I was powerless, that I had no power, I'd have said you were crazy. I said you were not. We got married and went over to her aunt's house and they had a reception for it. Walked in, there was nothing to drink, and I got mad. And I grabbed my new wife and I left. The same guy that wants to be the good husband, the good father, and the provider, I left. Took her on a two-day honeymoon to Miami from West Palm, and we stopped at the liquor store, and I got a bottle, and I began to drink. And I didn't want to celebrate my wedding alone, so, you know, I'd been to hell. I'd been to weddings all over the country. Never knew who I was getting married, but I just went to the wedding. I'd see them listed, Italian or Polish weddings, put on the suit, don't you drink. Now, I knew it. First time you threw up, you were out, but, you know, you could get away with it. I don't know about now, but then it was all right. But my wedding, nothing to drink, and I'm mad, and I'm drinking and celebrating, and she won't drink, and I'm mad at her because she won't drink, and I pick the guy up on the side of the road. He's just a bum. And he's sitting there, I'm sitting here, we pass the bottle back and forth across the new wife. And I wake up the next morning the same way I woke up every time I drank. But I never something different. And I got this woman laying next to me, and she's crying. And I don't mean just tears that roll out of the eyes. I'm talking about that deep down sobbing. And if you haven't done it, you've heard it. And when you've heard it, you know what I'm talking about. It hurts you as badly hearing it as you do when you're doing it. And God, I wanted to stop. And I looked at her and I said, I'm sorry, what's wrong? I knew what was wrong. I didn't remember what happened, but I knew what was wrong. And she told me. She said, I've lived this way before and I'll not live this way again. And I took that vow. I told her that I loved her and that I was sorry. And if she'd give me just one more chance, it'd never happen again. And I meant it with every fiber of my being. And I broke that promise over and over and over and over again. Until through March the 7th, 1974. And I didn't want it to be that way. It got worse and worse and worse. And I kept going to sea. And I think that's the only reason we stayed married. I can only guess that's the reason. Because I'd be gone and I'd write letters and I was verbal on these letters. And I'd tell her that I loved her and I needed her and I wanted her and I was sorry. And, and I'd go through this whole litany and I meant every word of it. 
and she'd get sick. I'd write every day, and when I'd come home, she'd be there at whatever airport I was flying into, and there'd be that look in her eyes, that hope, and she knew that things were going to be different now, and then she'd get one look at me, and the hope would go out as if she hit her with a bucket of ice water, because I'd be drunk. And I didn't want it to be that way. And we kept getting worse. We had a son born in 68. I remember nothing about it. We kept getting worse. 1973, I was thrown out of the merchant marine for chronic alcoholism. They called me a performer. That was their name for it. They couldn't say you were an alcoholic. They were afraid because I was in charge of a $200 million vessel. They said, we can't say you're an alcoholic. So they threw me out because I was a performer. They said, I'd never go to sea again unless they showed them I just stay sober. March the 7th of 1974. I found myself knocking at a man's back door 1,200 miles away from where we live. And when he answered the door, the first words out of my mouth were, I think I have a problem drinking. I had never said that to anybody. When I was in hospital for, for all the things you get, pancreatitis, gastroenteritis, I had them all. I never was in for alcoholism. Hell, I got in the hospital for everything else. Okay? And doctors say, if you quit drinking, it'll be all right. Priests would tell me I'm going to hell. She'd say she's leaving me. Employers were firing me. Because I never admitted. I said I wasn't drinking. It was always something else. I don't know where that came from that day. Mark said, it just came. And that man laughed, and he invited me into his house. Took me back to his study and set me down on a sofa, and he, he, he reached into his desk and gave me a copy of the book, the Alcoholics Anonymous. He had me open it up, and on a flyleaf there were some words written. It said, if you want what we have, and are willing to go to any length to get it, God will help us. We'll find love there. My daddy had had that book laying there for me for a good long while. And he hadn't said anything to me about my alcoholism. He'd give me the old Hopkins paper that they used to have out with the questions on it. He left that laying around one day just for sports. He never pushed it. He just said, just for the hell of it, look at this. Well, one or two of them maybe, yeah. But one time I'd gone to a meeting with him when I was 18 years old. Not for me, for him. So like going to the Masons with him or something like that. You know, never thought nothing about it. My dad never said a word to me about alcoholism or what it was doing to me. He just didn't drink. He kept going day. I found out later what he did, though. He'd come to meetings and he'd whine to you. He'd tell you, he'd say, what about my son? He's killing himself. He's losing everything. He's losing a career. He has no education, but he's good at what he does, and that's going down the tube. What can I do? And you said, leave him alone. Leave him alone. I'm so glad you didn't say intervene. You said, leave him alone. Let him do what he's got to do and go where he's got to go. And maybe when he's got nowhere else to go, he'll have somewhere to go. He can come to alcoholics and home. I'm so grateful for you people telling him that. Because when I had nowhere else to go, I went to his house. And he asked me that day, March the 7th, to come with him to a meeting, and I wouldn't go. I said, I couldn't. I was drunk. And he said, that's all right. Anyone can go to their first meeting drunk. But I wouldn't go. So I wrote two numbers down on a piece of paper. And he said, put these in your billfold. He said, and tomorrow morning, he said, when you wake up, if you wake up. He said, you might not, you might die, but if you wake up. And if you would rather be sober than be drunk, call one of these numbers before you take a drink, meet me at 7 tomorrow, and we'll go to a meeting. And then he and my mother talked to my wife, and away we went. And I drank that night. I have no idea where I went. All I know is I drank. I left her somewhere, and I was gone. And I woke up the next morning, or came to, or came out of it, or whatever I was doing, and by that stage of my drinking, the last couple of years of my drinking, all I did was drink. You don't have to have gone that far, but that's where it took me. All I did was drink. That doesn't mean I was drunk every day. 
but I don't remember ever not being drunk, not thinking about being drunk, on my way being drunk, or getting off of drunk. It was all I did. And I got up that morning, and I needed a drink. And if you woke up that way, you know what I'm talking about. My Every fiber in my body crying for that drink, and the drink was laying next to me. I needed it, and I wanted it. But there was something different. And that was the fact that no matter how bad I wanted it, I didn't want it just a little bit more. We see the signs in our meeting rooms. I hope you see them and you're like, but for the grace of God. God, I love that thing. But for the grace of God. You know, grace comes from a Latin word that I know today means gift. His unasked for gift to me that morning was that gift of a desire not to drink that was stronger than that desire to drink. And I had not asked for it. I know many people get on their knees and say, God, help me, and he does. I didn't. I had since, but I didn't think. It was just there. Why? I don't know. Maybe because my mom prayed for me and my sisters, my kids, and my wife. Or maybe because there was a meeting of AA and said, let's have a prayer for the suffering alcoholic. I don't know. But I had it that morning. And I believe that gift was given to me as it was given to each and every alcoholic in this room who is sober with a responsibility. A responsibility that you do everything you can to keep it. That I do everything I can to keep it or I'll lose it. That responsibility has not changed from then till now. What has changed is my ability. That first day I couldn't do much. Hell, I just didn't drink. I got up the next morning had that drive, didn't drink, she carried me to a hospital. Now, it wasn't to give you the stuff to give today. What they gave me was vitamin B12. I think back then they used needles that long and they were square. <laughs> and they didn't alternate sheets. Every day it was in the same sheet. I think the same damn spot. I don't know why. They told me it helped my nerves. Don't know if it did or not, but I didn't drink. And I got the shot. And then they told, they told her, they said, well, give them honey and orange juice. And said, well, we don't have any money for that. We'll get K-Roll syrup and orange juice. Now, and you know what it's like in March in Cleveland? You mix K-Roll syrup and orange juice, just do it as a test one day. It's like chunks of tar. It'll tear your butt up drinking that, I'll tell you. But I don't know if it helped or not, but I didn't have to drink. They said whenever you start getting grouchy, give a piece of hard candy. I always a whole candy in my mouth. Always that mouthful of that hard candy. Don't know if it helped or not, but I didn't have to drink. Met my dad that night, 7 o'clock. We went to a meeting, walked in the back door. It was a meeting like this, much smaller, but like this, with people just like you there, and there was a guy by the back door. And he had his hand out as we came in, and he grabbed mine. And my dad said, that's Jimmy, and he's your sponsor. And I took off. My dad took off. I got this bozo I never seen hanging on to my hand. I'll never forget his hand. You see, I know what my hand felt like because I felt it today. And I felt it almost every day since I've been an alcoholic and My hand was wet and cold and sick. And his hand was firm and it was warm and it was dry. And as he closed my hand, he said, my name's Jimmy and I'm glad to meet you. I just knew that he was. I hadn't had no counselor. Nobody was able to tell me about identification or bonding or any of that crap. But I knew that he was glad to meet me, I'll tell you that. And then he did something strange. He began to talk to me about him. Jimmy began to tell me what happened when he drank. We shouldn't have got along. He was a coal miner from West Virginia, worked in an auto factory. He didn't even speak good English, for God's sake. He told me what happened when he took a drink. 
Tell me how it got worse. Now he tried to stop and how it got worse. And what happened to his family and how it got worse. And as he talked to me, I knew, Jesus, this guy's lived like I live. He knows what it is. And then some bozo tells his story, much like I told mine tonight. And it gets all done. Jimmy takes me around and introduces me to guys. There's no guy up there in Cleveland named Frank. Frank was bald-headed and tall. Frank Kirk, Frank, uh, it's open to Well, Frank anyhow, but he's the east side of Cleveland. He's sober 50 years now, I'll bet. He was 25 years or so sober. And I remember Frank grabbed my hand. He had a gravelly voice. He said, kid, I'm glad to meet you. Keep coming. You'll be all right. He said, and I want you to meet so-and-so. He's brand new, too. You know, I was up, I go up to Cleveland and visit family periodically. I was up there last year, earlier this year rather, and I was at a meeting on the east side of Cleveland. There was Frank. Now Frank said I have close to 50 years. That's 25 and close to 50. 48 years. I don't know. Remember he's shaking my hand and said, it's good to see you, kid. I haven't seen you in a while. You keep coming. Things are going to be all right. He said, I want you to meet so-and-so. He's brand new. And I looked at Frank and said, Christ, Frank, are you still sponsoring people? Oh, I said, hell, I don't like people, but I can't drive no more. And he drives. <laughs> what Jimmy did was introduce me to winners in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they say, don't judge, but he said, judge. He said, stick with the winners. They said it right in the beginning. And he introduced me to him in that meeting. The guys who were staying sober, the gals who were staying sober when they'd rather be drunk. He introduced me to him. He didn't ask me that. He took me home. That, well, he, that, I remember talking to me more that night, and he asked me, he said, how do you feel? And I told him I was sick and I was scared. Not as well as I told you, but I told him. And he said, I'll tell you something, Jay. He said, I'll make you a promise. If you do three things on a daily basis, I guarantee you, you'll never have to come off another drunk. I guarantee you, you never got to come off another drunk. If you do these three things, I'm going to tell you, Jimmy told me. I said, what are they? I'll do anything. He said, when you get up in the morning, he said, I want you to say, God help me not drink today. He said, number two, if you can, go to an AA meeting. And number three, when you go to bed, say, thank you, God, for a sober day. He said, well, you do it. I said, I can't. I can go to meetings, but I can't say that God stuff. I don't believe in God. I've been raised in, in a religion. I, I've been taught about a God of love. I, all that was a part of my childhood, but I did not believe anymore. I didn't know what he was or he wasn't, but I didn't believe. I knew that. I'd made bargains. I'd broken them. I damned them. I didn't believe. Jimmy looked at me and laughed, and again he gave me alcoholic phenomenon. He said, you don't have to believe. Yes, later. Well, hell, I told you, I'm a liar. <laughs> you know, the book doesn't say you have to believe. What the book says is, if you believe or are even willing to believe, you're on your way. And all he wanted to do is see if I was willing. So I began to say it without believing it. And I began to feel phony about saying it. You know, today I started my day the same way I started that very next day. I got up this morning and I said, God, help me not take a drink today. All the other things that happened in my life are marginal. The most important thing that's happened is that I've gone this day without having to take a drink. That is the most important thing that's ever happened. And I don't ever want to forget it. There's been a lot of days from then till now when other stuff has gone on, but I haven't had to drink. I've been able to say in the morning, God, help me not take a drink today. You know, in the beginning, I'd say, God, help me. I didn't mean it. And at night, at night when I'd say, thank you, God, for a sober day, I didn't believe that. I thought, it was, you know, because I, I wanted to drink all day. I'd think about it. I'd say, thank you for a sober day. And I didn't mean it. He said, you don't have to mean it. Just say it. I said it. The second day, I didn't have a choice about going to meetings. i got to tell you a little bit about recovery because I've been drunk all night. But 
at my second meeting, and there wasn't a question about, do you want to go to a meeting tonight? He said, I'm picking you up, and we went. And we're on our way to the meeting, and he said, have you had a drink since last night? Well, hell no, I hadn't had a drink. I hadn't had a chance. You know, he didn't drop me off till midnight. He called me at 7 in the morning, called me again at 10, went to the hospital. I couldn't have drank if I wanted to. AA police, hell, I knew about them. They were all over. You guys joke about it, but I think it's real. And of course I haven't had a drink real smug-like. He looked at me and took away every excuse I'd ever have for taking a drink. He said, that's fantastic. He said, have you ever taken a drink? Now, because you'd rather be drunk than be sober. And I looked at him like he was out of his mind. What do you mean? He said, well, you stay sober the longest period of time you'll ever have to stay sober. One day. You'll never have to be sober longer than one day. God, what a reason. What if you'd have told me 90 days? What would I have done on 91 when I was back out on a ship? I'd have been dead. One day. That's it to me today. I, that doesn't mean anything. But I'm just telling you for me. One day is when I stay sober. Today is. Now, I'm sure that if I do tomorrow what I did today, I won't have to drink tomorrow. But by God, there have been today's when I've had to say, God, put that off till tomorrow. See, life ain't been a bed of roses, you know, a rose petal. It's been real. And in real life, real things happen. I was in Cleveland for two weeks, went to a meeting every single night. About two weeks after I'd come to my first meeting, we went to a meeting every night. I had no choice. He just picked me up, we went. By the time I knew I didn't have to go, I did, but I was already in the habit. I was afraid if I said I don't want to go, he'd have thrown me out. By the time I knew he wouldn't, I didn't want to not go. I just went. So anyhow, we were coming home from a meeting one night, shortly before I headed back down to Florida, and I looked over at him and said, Jimmy, I still have to go with this dad stuff they talk about. He said, well, look, he said, uh, uh, tonight, first time tonight, they'd ask you to do something. What'd you do? I said, I read the tradition. He said, before you read them, what'd you do? I said, well, I'm Jay, and I'm an alcoholic. He said, what is an alcoholic? And I told him what I thought one to be, the not being able to stop when I started, not knowing what had happened. And he said, hell, I know you. I just want to make sure that you knew you were. But he said, how long has it been since you've had a drink? And I knew how long it was, 13 or 14. I don't today. I don't remember. But then I knew exactly, you know. And he said, hey, have you been doing what I told you every morning and every night? I said, yeah. He said, well, when was the last time you went 14 days without a drink? Day at the time. And a feeling came over me that I can only describe to you as an awareness. An awareness of a power that I today call God. It wasn't God then. It was just a power. And I had goosebumps come all over me. And you just know it's there and it's working. Because I hadn't had to drink and I wanted to drink. I knew it worked. And that began a relationship that has grown with portions I couldn't begin to describe adequately. I told you when I, I got, went back to Florida. Let me tell you how I got to Florida. I came this way. Came right through Cincinnati. My car blew up in Columbus. So I got towed back to Cleveland. They had to rebuild that Volkswagen bus. Headed back to Columbus, back to West Palm Beach again. Got as far as Lexington, Kentucky, and, and, uh, it blew up again. Now, I got three kids with me and, and they gotta go home. And uh, one of them got to be in a hospital, and she's mad, and I got no money, and I get them on a plane with one of the last credit cards. I got one credit card left, and I decide I'll get drunk, because all this crap has happened. And I call Jimmy up, my sponsor. I call Jimmy, and I tell him what's happened. The car blew up again. I got no money, all this problem. Really, he said, have you called Alcoholics Anonymous? And he hung the phone up. <laughs> what about love and tolerance? Okay. Responsibility belongs on the person that doesn't want to drink. It wasn't his responsibility. I called Alcoholics Anonymous and went to a meeting. I didn't have to drink. Got back to Florida. 
When I got back to Florida, my phone rang. A guy named Jack was on the phone. Jack, a little short guy. He was sober. He was at the first international here in Cleveland, or up in Cleveland. They appointed Jack to be my temporary sponsor in Cleveland. I remember Jack taking me to meetings. And Jack saved my life. He was my friend in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he helped me until John came along to help me with the steps. But Jack introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous. His name was Jack Morell. His wife's name was Billy, and they've both gone on to wherever we go when we die after we've done the right thing. And I remember Jack taking me to a meeting one time. He sort of drifted from AA when he got to Florida because it was different than it was in Cleveland. He didn't real active here, but he got real active when I was down there because he had a new guy to work with. He was taking me to meetings. And I remember going to a meeting about a month and a half or so sober. I was back. I went on a ship and got back off. And, and we're at a meeting. And, and I remember a guy had hurt my back and a doctor had given me some stuff to take. And I began to talk about that in the meeting, what the doctor had given me to take and talking about some other stuff that I'd taken before I got here. And I remember Jack saying, shut up. And I looked at him, and I was hurt. And he took me outside, right in the middle of the meeting. And I was embarrassed. And he explained to me that what I was was at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we talk about alcoholism. He said, we've all taken stuff other than alcohol. Everybody, all ever since. But we aren't going to identify with the particulars of other substances that we've taken. What we will identify with is alcohol. How we've taken, no control, we start to drink. The other stuff we've taken, when we have questions about it, what we do is get together with someone that's taken other stuff outside of me, and we talk about it and we find out answers. He said, well, let's preserve alcoholic anonymous. Let's not confuse it with other things. That's 23 years ago. Yeah, he prayed that alcoholic anonymous would be around if you ever had kids or grandkids that needed it. Just like some of you have commented today from this podium. My life in Alcoholics Anonymous has been absolutely fantastic. Every promise that you told me it happened has happened and beyond. I'm going to tell you something. One of them was, I'll tell you a promise that happened. My dad and I, dad died. Dad died in, 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 in 81. And dad died of cancer. And it was a very terrible, terrible death. And I had made amends to my dad, but I never felt they were complete. Like, I've heard talks about dad, just really never knew if they were there. My dad and I never got that close thing. And I wanted it to be there, and I just didn't know. And he wouldn't even talk to me the last three months he died. Wouldn't let me go see him. And it was just, we were living in North Carolina. He was, I just, God, it was terrible. He moved to Florida. He wasted whatever they had. And I wanted things to change, and I wanted to help, and I wanted to do and be. And, and by that, a guy named Sponsor, I, uh, the guy that I talked to named Bryant uh, all the time. And I go to Bryant and say, Bryant, what should I do? And he said, Jay, do what a loving son does. And I said, well, Bryant, what does a loving son do? He said, if you're a loving son, you'll know. See, Bryant wouldn't make decisions for me. None of the people that I talked to, even though sponsored me, have made decisions. What they do is have me look for the truth in my actions and then be responsible for it. Doesn't let me be slack. Makes me look for the truth and be responsible for it. And I did what a loving son was supposed to do. I allowed my dad to go on and die and die the way he wanted with the dignity he wanted. I never spoke to my daddy again. But on my AA birthday that year, 1982, not 81, my AA birthday that year, I got a card and I couldn't read the card. It just had scribbles on it and a place cut off the bottom and I could see love dad. And there was a letter fell off to my mom and she explained the card. She said your dad wanted to communicate with you on his AA birthday. And he took himself off all his medications, and this was just a very short time before he died. And he wanted to be clear of mind, and as he tried to write, he couldn't write. And he was all embarrassed because he was a man of letters, and said, 
He said, well, you tell me what to say, and, I, and, and I'll write it down, and then you copy it. And he tried that, and he couldn't get it down, and they cut that off, and he just tried to love that. And he looked at her at that time, and finally accepted his coming death. He had not accepted it. He just said, read on the sick man, and I know I'll die soon. Well, my mother said, it's important. You know what he was trying to tell you. He said, dear son, you're in quotes. Congratulations on your AA birthday. What a glorious, wonderful, wonderful thing. How can we ever be grateful enough to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous for all that it's given us? It's given us a loving God who turned a lost son and discovered a lost body. I knew then that everything was okay between me and Dad and God. And you see, that's what an amend is. When I know, I don't have to say it, I just know that everything's okay between you and me and God. My life and fantastic. Kids are grown, all three of them. One hates me, one loves me, one hates you. And they can. <laughs> and I found out some things that went on with a daughter of mine a little while ago and it explained a lot of problems in her life. It's never like that. My youngest boy is 29 years old. I know I don't look that old, but he is. Hell, I got a grandkid 16. Jesus, that's scary. But youngest guy kissed me goodbye when he sees me. Tell me that he loves me. My wife and I, we got a, we're still married. I can't believe it. Fantastic relationship. We don't fight too much once in a while, but not much. And things were going great, and we were living in North Carolina, and I started a business, and I thought everything was going to be fantastic, and I'd be as wealthy as Lou. And then I got a phone call in August 1994 while I was 250 miles away in Myrtle Beach working at one of my shops and she had a heart attack, a massive heart attack. And I get up the road and she's in intensive care. And then they went to do surgery and she had a stroke and they found some things wrong with her that are not, that are not, that are not reversible. There's just some real problems with her. And the doctors wouldn't let her leave and I had to be in Myrtle Beach working and she's up there and I'm running back and forth and we had a house on a golf course and we had all the trappings that I'd always, and they were great. I loved them. Fine. And then finally last year, the doctors released her. And they said she'd come down there and she's going to come to West, uh, to uh, Myrtle Beach where I live and we're going to be together there and I'd be able to, to help her. And, and uh, our house was going to close on May 15th and on May 10th they found a tumor in her breast. And on May 15th when our house closed, they did a mastectomy on my wife and the news wasn't all that great. That's mother stuff. I'm not telling you that's a pity or empty or nothing like that. Don't need none of that. My wife's an active member of a thing called Alanon. And she's a good member and she sends her love. And her last words to me today when I was on the phone with her at about 7 o'clock, tell them folks if you'd like that I love them. And I'm glad you're there with them because I know you're in good hands. See, my wife and I talk about living a day at a time. And my wife shows me about that. See, a day at a time is all any of us have. It's all any of us have. Some of us appreciate it more than others. I know she does, and I know I want to. How can I be grateful enough to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous? I'll tell you how. I was down in uh, Florida a year, year and a half ago talking to a little intergroup deal, and I had a host and hostess there, and every bit of gracious was yours and her husband. Every bit of gracious. So they didn't show up for dinner, and I was hungry, and I was a big deal speaker that night, and they weren't there, and I wanted to eat, and they finally showed up, and we go to eat, and I made some sarcastic remarks about them not being at the meeting, where they could have heard this guy talk. He talked about 
he lived in a real strange relationship with all kinds of guys involved, and I made this comment about how they both all, his parents both had men's names. And the, the girl looked at me, she wasn't about 21 years old, so that's not very funny. She, uh, my grandmother had a man's name, she was called Bill, was Billy. And really, she guessed, my grandpa's name was Jack. That was her last name. She said Morel. They didn't know. He didn't know that Jack Mill had been my sponsor's sponsor and he'd helped me. They didn't know what he had told me about keeping Alcoholics Anonymous Alcoholics Anonymous. This little girl, 21 years old, took stuff other than alcohol, but we just talked about alcoholism. And there hadn't been an alcoholic Anonymous where she was. I don't know. How can I be grateful enough? I'll tell you how. To believe what you told me. That God gave this deal called Alcoholics Anonymous to some guys who wrote it down in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And they passed this program on to others, and they gave it to others, and they gave it to you, and you gave it to me. And each and every one of us is charged with the same responsibility. That we do nothing to change it, nothing to water it down, nothing to weaken it, but to leave it just the way it was when we got it. Alcoholics Anonymous. So there's a place for a guy like you, a guy like one of you, a guy like one of you to go. It's got absolutely nowhere else to go. I told you before, I'll never be able to thank you enough to my God and to our God.